Welcome to the Itchy Podcast. I'm David Calfi, Editor of Infection Control and Hospital Epidemiology, a journal of Society for Healthcare Epidemiology of America. It's November 2022, and November brings us World Antibiotic Awareness Week, which is intended to raise awareness of the threat of antibiotic resistance and the importance of appropriate antibiotic use. With that in mind, I've invited authors of a Shea statement published in this month's issue of Itchy that addresses antibiotic stewardship in hospitals during public health emergencies to talk to us today. Joining us for this discussion are Tamar Barlam, the lead author of the paper, who is a professor of medicine and the section chief of the Infectious Disease Division at Boston University School of Medicine in Boston, Massachusetts, Alan Gross, an infectious disease pharmacist and a clinical associate professor in the College of Pharmacy at the University of Illinois at Chicago, Graham Forrest, who is a professor of medicine in the Division of Infectious Diseases at Rush Medical College, also in Chicago, Illinois, and Mayar Almohajer, who is an associate professor at the Baylor College of Medicine and the chief of the infectious disease section and medical director of infection prevention, diagnostic stewardship, and antibiotic stewardship at Baylor St. Luke's Medical Center in Houston, Texas. I really appreciate all of your work on this important topic, and thank you for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you. Great to be Over the past few years, the COVID-19 pandemic has taught us a lot about the fragility of our healthcare systems and processes and has highlighted opportunities for improvement. For example, in previous episodes of the podcast, we've talked about the substantial increase in healthcare-associated infections that occurred during the first years of the pandemic and some of the potential causes of that. And we've also discussed how existing health inequities contributed to a disproportionate burden of COVID-19 disease and death among residents of some long-term care facilities. Today though, the focus of the discussion is your paper that uses data from the COVID-19 pandemic to provide recommendations for antibiotic use and stewardship during future infectious disease crises. And so to get the conversation started, Tamar, can you tell us about the rationale behind the decision to develop this paper and really why it was thought that we needed it? Sure, David. I think that many people in our field of antibiotic stewardship, hospital epi, and just infectious disease were really thrust into the leadership for treating patients with COVID. And what we noticed was there was a marked, what we viewed as overuse of antibiotics for patients who didn't have bacterial infections. We thought that many of the lessons that were learned along the way could be memorialized and could be used as a way to try to improve practice in the future. So we really wanted to address how you act in the setting of uncertainty, severe illness, and still apply rational choices for antibiotic use so that you don't cause unnecessary emergence of antibiotic resistance so that you don't cause unnecessary adverse drug reactions, increased rates of C. difficile, and that also as we went through the pandemic, how you can apply your clinical observations and lessons learned, led often by the stewardship teams to educate other providers to really adjust your practice and have some confidence in that practice based on what you learn as things proceed and you get more information about patient presentations and 
amounts of co-infections with bacterial infections, et cetera. So we just thought that it was really good to take stock and to really discuss this and give almost some guideposts going forward and some basis to support clinicians to practice better prescribing. Great. There's certainly some like important issues. So what methods did you use or what approach did you take to put this document together? Thanks, David. This is uh, Graham Forrest uh, from Rush. This was rather unique is that we got a couple of groups from the Guidelines Committee and from the Antibiotic Stewardship Committee together, and we paired off uh, these people who had experience with anointed stewardship, but also were developing guidelines to develop this white paper. And it became a very good, well, a team approach. And we used these guidelines. First, we had a librarian do a literature search for us and upload documents for over two years worth on everything that's COVID related, on antibiotic use with COVID related for from like 2019 to 2021, when we first completed the first draft of the paper. And then the authors went into Covidence, which is a, an abstract management service and reviewed the abstracts that seemed to fit with what we were looking at, with uh, diagnostics, with antibiotic stewardship, with new drugs that were coming out and being part of instant command, all those types of processes. And so we reviewed all those articles as groups, and then we summarized them together and then put them all together. And Tamar and the team did an amazing job to sort of put together 10 different people's writings to then summarize it into what's currently our white paper. And then this was reviewed by the major societies out there, Shea, IDSA, uh, Pediatric Infectious Disease Society, Society of Critical Care Medicine, and of course our pharmacists who did a fantastic job through all this COVID work, especially with uh, new drugs coming on and how they're going to be used and all the EUAs. And I think that was one of the practical measures of what we did. Great. And before we get into talking about what you found during your review of all that literature, I want to talk for just a minute about what I think is some important terminology that's used in the paper. And I'm specifically referring to your use of the term co-infection, which I think could mean different things to different people. But in the paper, you use it to refer to a very specific scenario, which I think is relevant to the discussion. And so when we hear you use that term today or when we see it in the paper, what should we be thinking about? So in the paper, we had really two very different scenarios, which is whether bacterial infection was present on admission along with the COVID infection. And then also if patients had been hospitalized for a few days and progressive hospitalizations, whether they developed hospital-associated nosocomial infections. So we put a lot of effort into discussing the present-on-admission co-infection because this was really an instance where there was uh, pretty rapidly available data that there was low percentages of patients who were admitted with COVID who actually had an infection with a bacteria like, uh, you know, a strep pneumo or staph aureus or things of that sort. And I know at my hospital, and I think uh, the other authors saw the same thing, not only were being people being treated for community-acquired bacterial pneumonia, they were being treated for drugs that are appropriate for hospital-associated pneumonia. So it was really a little bit wild, wild west. So co-infection is that you're presenting with COVID, you're being newly admitted, and yet you're still getting um, antibiotics. 
And at the beginning, the concern was, well, we have a lag in diagnostic testing and, you know, we don't know for sure the person had COVID. But as it emerged in each individual area, you know, town, city, et cetera, it was pretty obvious that these patients were coming in with COVID, even as the diagnostics got better. And then once they're hospitalized, you know, for over 48 hours, we use that definition because that's the definition used in the guidelines for hospital-associated pneumonias. Then indeed, you do start to see an increasing amount of infections with bacterial pathogens. You know, patients are perhaps intubated, perhaps, you know, just being exposed to the hospital environment. And we've made separate recommendations in that setting in terms of how you can assess them. But those definitions were important, particularly to really clarify the present on admission, because we saw, and in the literature, well-documented that throughout the pandemic, that remained definitely a prime area of overuse of antibiotics. I want to add on to what Tamar's saying. I mean, in our paper, we showed that on admission was less than 5% actually had a bacterial infection at the same time. And even that was dubious because they were calling lots of things bacteria that could have just been colonizers at the time. And that went up to over 30, 35% to meet that hospital-acquired infection rate. So I think this is critically important to understate how we overtreated early. They got 100% of those people got antibiotics that didn't need it. So that's probably a good segue then into the next part of our discussion where you know I'd like to hear from you about some of your key findings from that review of the literature related to whether it's antibody prescribing or diagnostic testing during those early months and, and year or so of the pandemic. Hello, David. This is Maya from Baylor. I can talk about the diagnostic stewardship component. So what we found then, three key findings in related to the test. So the first thing is we found that the inflammatory markers like ASR, CRP, procalcitonin, and WBC were generally elevated, but they were not really associated with the bacterial or fungal infections. So lots of people ordered these tests, and when they saw that the numbers were elevated, they started the patients on antibiotic for concern of bacterial infection. But really, they were more representative of like immune dysregulation or hyperinflammation issues. And the second thing what we've touched on a little bit earlier was the uh, microbiological studies. And we have seen that blood culture utilization has been dramatically increased in patients with COVID compared to previously. And the problem is not only the cost, but also the blood culture contamination. So once you order blood culture on patients with low yield, you will have, you'll have to deal with the contamination rates and unnecessary antibiotics. And the third thing we've noticed in terms of diagnostic tests is ordering x-ray and CAT scan. And for x-ray, there were cases that the x-ray were negative early in the disease, and there were overutilization of CAT scan, which are really helpful in some cases, for example, checking for pulmonary embolism, but they're not really indicated for every patient who's hospitalized with pneumonia. This is Alan Gross from uh, UIC College of Pharmacy. Thanks for having me. To play off that, the diagnostic uncertainty really impacted how we were managing our patients. And, you know, naturally with, in the throes of the pandemic, we really need to consider like the emotions and the behavior around the management of our patients. And I think that really impacted what we did because naturally we all want to do the right thing for our patients and what's best for them. But when clinicians have high uncertainty in terms of 
what is the best approach, what is the evidence supporting a specific intervention, and also patients who are intubated in the ICU and overloaded EDs, et cetera, at the start of the pandemic. It's very stressful, and it can cause kind of a suspension of the practice of evidence-based medicine. And I think this is something that's we saw obviously during the COVID pandemic, but it's something that you're going to see in the future with other public health emergencies. And that was part of the impetus for this uh, paper, as Tamar alluded to. So, you know, we kind of looked at that. There are mental models actually for prescribing of antibiotics that have been evaluated in the literature. And we kind of looked to see what, what kind of impacts that and influences that uh, so that we could kind of better implement things at, at our own institutions and, and talk about recommendations within the paper. And I think it's a realization that I think a lot of us had as, as clinicians caring for our patients that we were reminded we need to practice evidence-based medicine. And sometimes we don't need to intervene with, I hate to even mention hydroxychloroquine, but that was a practice that was used uh, in many centers early on. And that was based on very limited reports of uh, potential utility. And later when we had high quality randomized controlled trials, we knew that was not worthwhile and it was not a good use of resources. So anyway, I think uh, just underlying the evidence-based medicine and the need to uh, know that intervening doesn't necessarily confer a benefit, especially when we don't have evidence of a benefit, uh, is something that we tried to highlight in the paper. I just wanted to say how the stewardship programs became such an integral part of the C-suite as we went along with this pandemic, from drug shortages, for understanding EUAs on how to implement processes for getting patients treated with drugs, uh, the evidence was changing every week and our antibiotic stewardship uh, teams at every hospital were trying to interpret the evidence, the updated guidelines, and then uh, educate providers at their hospitals. And so stewardship programs became the, the gold standard for uh, running this pandemic. They were so critically important. And I think that's what we were trying to highlight uh, in the paper as well. And to add to what's been said and build on what Graham was saying is the emergency preparedness staffing, if you will, has not included antibiotic stewardship in the guidance even that was published by Shea a few years ago. They talked about hospital epidemiology, but they didn't talk about antibiotic stewardship. And I think that the realization of, as Graham said, just how much the stewardship team was doing. And yeah, they were trying to improve appropriate antibiotic use, but they were also helping with um, education and decisions about steroids and tocilizumab and monoclonal antibodies and all sorts of things. And they were really at the forefront of keeping up to date on an ever-changing literature and certainly we've seen it even a little bit of a bump in the this monkeypox, which is a very different type of outbreak. But again, it's vaccinations, it's teapots, it's all sorts of things. And the stewardship team, I think now should be very well seated within the emergency preparedness response. And I feel like hospitals now appreciate that. But we did want to highlight that, that that was and will be so crucial as, you know, any future outbreaks might occur. The stewardship team really, just to underline that a little bit, I mean, the literature came out so quickly, the new evidence evolved so rapidly, somebody needed to be there to really critically evaluate the evidence, help digest it, 
and help operationalize that. And that was the, the pharmacists and the physicians and the stewardship teams in the healthcare facilities because everybody's running around managing the patients, you know, at the bedside. But if, if nobody's actually reading every article and really understanding how this should apply to our patients, it's not going to be great. You know, I think all those things you've talked about, you know, a new pathogen we didn't really understand, concerns for bacterial co-infection at the time of admission, even though we subsequently learned that that was quite uncommon, difficulty uh, interpreting inflammatory marker tests, as well as all the other aspects that came along with the early months of the pandemic with staffing shortages and supply shortages and, and just fear of transmission of infection hospitals was really a perfect storm for inappropriate antibiotic prescribing and for the propagation of antimicrobial resistant pathogens. And I'm sure most people have seen the CDC report from earlier this year that describes a substantial increase among several antimicrobial resistant healthcare associated pathogens in 2020, including a 78% increase in carbapenem resistant acinetobacter and a 35% increase in carbapenem resistant enterobacteraceae. And so I think your recommendations are, you know, critically well-timed. And so maybe this is a good time to go into the specific recommendations or highlights of some of the specific recommendations that your group has put together with regard to diagnostic testing and antimicrobial prescribing in the setting of future infectious disease crises. And so in terms of uh, diagnostic testing, um, some of the key recommendations that uh, we came up with was really to be judicial with ordering some of these labs. For example, maybe acceptable to order like some inflammatory market baseline when someone's presenting to the hospital, if they're, for example, going to the ICU, then like ordering CRP, LDH, or D-dimer, or ferritin might be okay. But ordering these tests, uh, like what we've seen every single day at the hospital, that's not really indicated. There are a few cases that ordering CRP might be helpful, particularly if you want to start uh, your patient on tocilizumab or barcitinib. Um, the other thing is ordering calcitonin for patients who are coming to the hospital is not really recommended if that's going to um, lead to the decision to start antibiotics. Um, the other point I want to emphasize about ordering bacterial culture, respiratory culture, or PCRs for patients who are coming to the hospital it's really not needed unless like your patient is critically ill in the ICU or getting worse. Most patients who come into the hospital with COVID pneumonia don't really need uh, respiratory or blood culture. And of course, we've made recommendations about restraining uh, yourself with antibiotics, particularly for patients who are presenting on admission. We talked a little bit about when you might want to think about antibiotics such as when there's a very dense consolidation on the chest x-ray, which not, would not necessarily be typical of all the COVID cases. We talked a little bit about patients are stable on the floor as opposed to intensive care, then there really is no need to treat for bacterial infection or to do this myriad diagnostic tests that Meyer was just uh, talking about. And then we did our recommendations around more the um, hospital, people who've been hospitalized for a period of time, particularly those who are in intensive care, then it's appropriate to try to make a microbiologic diagnosis if you feel that they have developed an infection, both to be sure what the organism is, allow for narrowing potentially the, the spectrum of antibiotic you use. We mentioned a bit procalcitonin, although I still think that's an extremely crude, crude tool. But if someone has already started antibiotics that, you know, there's some 
suggestion, perhaps it would help you reassure you to stop the antibiotics sooner. But again, I'm not a, a big fan of the procalcitonin utility in this setting. So our recommendations, I think we're pretty specific about not jumping on the antibiotics at admission and a reasonable approach if you do decide with patients who are remain hospitalized when you would start to consider that they might need antibiotic treatment and then how you monitor it further. We also quite honestly talked about resources for stewardship programs as a recommendation because they were so essential and you don't want to drop everything else that a stewardship team is doing. So you need to maintain your regular stewardship activity and respond to a public health emergency. And the only way you can really do that is with appropriate resources that are provided to you by the institution and appreciation for the work that the burden of work that uh, you're going to be taking on and that it's uh, cost effective because the stewardship team has such an important role to play in terms of appropriateness of, of care. I think I also want to add about the uh, diagnostic stewardship is really the radiology component. And sometimes people forget about uh, that. I mean, there is lots of costs and unnecessary radiation from ordering unnecessary x-rays. And what we've seen that in the ICU, patients might get daily x-ray or frequent CAT scan. And really the new recommendation is to avoid ordering daily x-ray for everyone in the hospital, everyone in the ICU, and also ordering CAT scan only when it's needed based on change of clinical management, like having a PE, for example. I was going to say, it's very easy for us sometimes to say, oh, don't start antibiotics when that patient's critically ill. And that's always a challenge. But I think we can enhance a better de-escalation when there's uh, nothing coming back other than what you've got virally. Uh, one of the critical factors, again, in this pandemic were uh, other measures that we usually use, like nasal swabs for PCR, were discontinued, which really hand-tied us for saying, well, there's no MRSA, stop the vancomycin. But uh, we were limited by a lot of procedures and processes. And I think we're having an understanding of those issues, then we can actually make sure it doesn't happen again the next time. Another nice thing that you included in the document was a, a nice description of some of the important roles of the ASP team, including our ASP pharmacists and, and physicians and others. And I know, Alan, you alluded to some of these things in our earlier discussion, but I don't know if there's anything else you'd like to highlight about the, the important roles of the ASP team and these important public health crises. I mean, I think really the first thing I think about is, again, just operationalizing evidence-based medicine and helping helping provide the resources and education to our frontline providers to translate the new, the evolving data to the bedside. I think that's that was a major role personally for me and the institution. I know that was a big role for a lot of the stewardship. Uh, I mean, again, a major role for the stewardship program. So I think that was essential. Allocating finite therapies. We didn't have a lot of remdesivir initially. We didn't have a lot of the therapies initially when they were first released. So what are the exact patient populations we think are going to benefit the most from these limited therapies so we can maximize what we have for our patients? I think that was another key thing. And it's, it's just such a great uh, collaboration between pharmacists, physicians, nursing, uh, you know, really everybody in the institution to make sure we're doing the best thing for our patients. I know the focus of these recommendations is specifically antibiotic stewardship during public health emergencies, but I want to talk a little bit about what we should be doing now. 
it seems quite daunting to think about building the types of programs and interventions that you described from scratch in the middle of a public health emergency. So it seems that we really need to build strong systems and establish good relationships with prescribers and hardwire those into our daily clinical practice now so that they're already in place and less likely to fail when they are put under stress. So with that in mind, uh, we end every podcast by asking each participant to give listeners an action item that they can take away from the podcast and that they can put into practice in the very near term, today or this week. So I'll ask each of you for one or two suggestions with regard to what we can or should be doing now to prepare our hospitals and our antimicrobial stewardship programs for the next public health crisis. Well, I'm going to start with maybe an easiest one in terms of uh, the antibiotic stewardship team. I think that it was just so essential to include us in the emergency response and appreciate that we have a role to play, that I think that's something that should be continuing and permanent and that there should be ongoing communication with leadership with these perspectives in place. And there should be discussion of how you can flex for a public health emergency with these resources and then perhaps reassign, you know, to other initiatives when things are a little bit quieter. Um, so those are certainly the conversations I'm continuing to have with the leaders at my hospital in terms of how we can do that. And I really think that when I think back to kind of their response as COVID was starting in terms of, oh, I'm not sure you need to be in the room. I'm not sure you need to come to these meetings too. Calling us basically 24-7 to ask for input and questions. I really feel like there's been an evolution and I think we should continue to make that permanent and make that ongoing. I think there's always going to be challenges for the next pandemic as with testing and treatment. But I think if we stick while these things are being sorted out, I think if we stick to our traditional durations of therapy or our standard durations of therapy and, and discontinuation of antibiotics uh, uh, within you know, 48, 72 hours when we don't have a pathogen, I think we can do just as well while we're waiting for these technologies to come through rather than prolonging therapies unnecessarily. So I think the stewardship has a great role in, in making sure the standards are still maintained. I can say... Think about the importance of education and uh, talk to your providers and uh, give them updates um, on like new studies or new practices nationwide. And the other thing is from diagnostic stewardship, uh, I mean, review your order sets, uh, be sure not to have uh, everyone with like multiple labs pre-checked for uh, any new infection. I think that's really one easy way to promote uh, stewardship. I mean, related to, you know, maintaining a robust stewardship program and, uh, you know, maintaining good care for our patients. I mean, I think, I think a lot of us have recognized the churn in healthcare and resiliency issues uh, in healthcare in the past two and a half years with the pandemic. And so I just encourage you to, you know, reach out to your colleagues in the ICU, re reach out to your uh, nurses at the bedside, reach out to your stewardship team, et cetera. And I'd, I'd say acknowledge them and appreciate them and, and do whatever you can to help support them and help support uh, the resources of the program. Well, I think those are great homework assignments for all of us to take away from this today. I really appreciate you and your colleagues for summarizing the literature on this important topic and for providing such useful recommendations on these important issues. 
I also thank each of you once again for joining us today. I also want to thank Lindsay McMurray, our producer and the managing editor of Itchy. And finally, I want to thank you, our listeners. I hope you'll join us again for the next episode of the Itchy Podcast. Thank you very much, David. Thank you, David. Thank you. Thank you.